Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Welcome to Exploring Mormon Thought. Last time we finished up Volume 3, and now we're moving into quasi-uncharted territory. We're actually going to start on at least, I don't know if this is all of Volume 4, but a large chunk of Volume 4, or possibly all of Volume 4. And it's dealing with what is known in philosophy as the problem of evil. And so this first section, or the first chapter, is called What We Learn from the Problem of Evil. So we're going to go over what the problem of evil is and an argument, but before we do that, I wanted to just kind of talk about, first off, to define when philosophers say evil, what they mean is any kind of bad thing, basically. So human suffering, or I think you can expand that to just suffering and bad things of, of any ilk whatsoever. We'll, we'll define it carefully in terms of moral, natural, and different kinds of evils, like certain evils, real evils, apparent evils, and so, so on as we discuss this. And keep in mind also that we're charting new territory because we're discussing a book that hasn't been published yet. What we're doing is foreshadowing the book. So in essence, we have foreknowledge of something that the rest of the public won't have. There you go. So yeah, I mean, some of this could change. We're just going over what it is thus far end, based on our conversations, maybe we'll come up with some sort of difference. We'll see. So I was just saying evil because I remember back when I first heard of the problem of evil, I'm like, is this about Satan? Because that's what I think of when I think of evil, and that's why I define, you know, there's suffering and just that. So that's what we mean by evil. So in the paper, first you start out by, you quote a famous Bette Midler song, From a Distance, and this was popular in the early 90s, I remember, like during the Gulf War, and the lyrics are just basically, God's watching us from a distance. And the idea there is, it may seem bad here, but if you just kind of zoom out to God's perspective, everything makes sense, and there really is no evil. Everything makes sense in this grand tapestry. And I think, and you don't put this in your paper, but from my reading, I think this was kind of an Augustinian view almost, that if you picture like the the universe or God's creations as a painting. It's like, you know, it may seem that from your perspective, your color is gray and boring, but if you could zoom out and see the whole painting, you would see how it's just part of this grand painting and everything works out for the best. It's actually not Augustine, it's Leibniz. Gottfried Leibniz came up with this best of all possible worlds when you see it all together. And so, you know, when we're talking about this kind of the harmony you know, it's called the, the great harmony of the world point of view. And I remember the very first time I heard this song that God was watching us from a distance. And I thought, you know, I don't like that point of view. I like the point of view where God got down in the mud and the blood and the guts of humanity with us in Jesus and in his experience. And I love the view that God is intimate with us, not far off, just kind of gazing and observing. And so it seems to me the very essence of Christianity is that God participated in the fullness of evil with us. So he's not just watching from a distance. Okay, great. And then, yeah, and with that, you kind of jump into what can be termed radical evils. And I guess to start out, 
you define basically radical evils are such that they appear to us, for all that we can grasp, to not be justifiable because they destroy the very humanity of the victims and we cannot fathom any greater good to which they are necessary. So go ahead and tell a couple of these stories. Yeah, I mean, keep in mind, these are still very personal and very painful for me. The first is Rachel Runyon. She was kidnapped on 26 August 1982 at about 12.30 p.m. She was playing with her brothers. She had a brother who was one and a half years old and one who was five years of age. And they were playing at a park in Sunset, Utah. And a male 25 to 35 years of age showed up, offered her some gum. And, you know, this is just a quintessential kidnap story. She went with him. And I remember during the time, because I'd had a daughter by that time, I remember thinking what it would be like to not know where my daughter is. I remember praying that Rachel would be found. And they found her 24 days later on 19 September 1982. They found her body in Morgan County. And she had been brutally raped and bludgeoned over the head to kill her. And I just remember how violated I felt, just how... How on earth could a just God allow this kind of thing to happen? I felt so bad for her mom. And it seemed to me as like, how on earth do these kind of things happen? This is an unsolved case, by the way. They never caught the scum of the earth who did this. And I, (laughs) there, there are some times I have to admit, when I hope there's a hell for people like this, I know it's a terrible thought, but I honestly, I mean, there's this something deep in me that just cries out for justice, saying, no, the, the person who did this has got to face justice, has got to face the absolutely atrocious thing that he did. And so there's a part that's deep in me that, that hopes very deeply that God will require the people who do these kinds of things to come to full consciousness of the pain that they've caused and suffer because of the suffering that they caused others. And I don't mean to impose physical suffering on them. I mean the kind of mental suffering that only a parent can really know. And so this one is very personal to me, and I've never been able to reconcile myself to it, frankly. Okay. And then, just for sake of time, I'm going to sum up the other two, if you don't mind. The second one, unfortunately, is not... I mean, this is your recollection of an experience, but unfortunately it's not unique to this. No, and it was a friend of mine who underwent this. Um, All right. I know of people that have had similar experiences in different ways. So, you know, say that basically there's this little girl, I guess she got out of the car and somehow it started rolling. I mean, the details are important, but basically she got run over by a car that was supposed to be still and not moving. And so some mechanical failure caused the car to roll backwards and her brother was there and he you know was too young to actually stop or do anything about it but he you know watched this car roll over her head and basically kill her right there and so she's killed the parents are you know emotionally destroyed and the brother that saw it you say like when he grew up he was basically in like a catatonic state so it basically ruined his whole life and so I guess this falls under what some people would call a kind of ironically an an act of God, if you will, you know, some natural evil or some thing that occurs that isn't caused by another person. Because the last one you'd say, okay, well, there's that guy, I guess, you know, he did that though. God didn't do that. And this one you're like, well, I mean, what do you say? I I mean, I guess there could be some reason that... 
this is a mix of fairly innocent human negligence because um, the neighbor forgot to set the brake on the car. And of nature, the laws of nature were operative, and so it's a mix of both, and that's why I use it as an example. So there's that, and I mean, I, you know, there's, there's unfortunately hundreds of stories like this. Uh, a person that used to live in our ward that moved away, we just found out a couple of days ago that their kid somehow went outside when, and they don't usually do this, and they had a pool, and they found him in the pool that morning, you know, and, and he wasn't dead yet, everyone prayed, but eventually he succumbed to that and did die, and so, you know, that's, like, what, what's going on here? Like, this little kid doesn't know any better. What's going on? And then your last example is, I guess, more pure what's called natural evil or evil that's not from a human, is you had a close friend, brilliant man, and he has contracted brain cancer, and basically you had to watch while his bodily functions progressively failed, and then, you know, he lost control of his bowels, and just basically the degradation of this mind and body of this brilliant man, and then eventually he died from this after a long period of terrible suffering and breaking down. You know, this is, this is cancer, but this is also what, like I said, what I, it's called natural evil. It's like, you know, earthquakes, tsunamis, all this kind of thing falls into this, like, you know, obviously humans didn't cause this, at least directly, I mean, that we know of. I want to add a fourth one, because it's really important to the conversation we're going to have. Contrast the brain cancer with the most virulent killer in the history of the world, and that's smallpox. Until it's declared eradication on 9 December 1979, smallpox killed more people than any other disease. During the 20th century alone, it led to the death of 300 to 500 million people. The introduction of smallpox to New World, to indigenous populations, ironically by Catholic priests who were there to appropriate their salvation, nearly wiped out numerous native tribes. In the last years of the 18th century, each year, there were in excess of 400,000 deaths. Of those who survived one-third were blinded. Between 20 and 60% of people who contracted smallpox died of it. The important thing about this is that it has been fully eradicated. It was eradicated through the efforts of WHO in the United Nations and the widespread vaccine that was developed using a cowpox vaccine. Smallpox is one of the great medical triumphs of the 20th century. We have literally rid the world of the most virulent killer in history. This is no small achievement, but I want to include it because I use it to contrast, and it's important to our discussion. And you use those examples because the problem of evil doesn't really, I mean, you can talk about it like philosophically, but it really hits home when you look at these actual examples of specific types of evil. And because you can talk about evil in generic terms, but when you get down to the where the rubber meets the road, you know, that's where we really have to grapple with it. Anyway, so now we're going to kind of zoom out again and go over the actual argument of the classical problem of evil. And so uh, I'm just going to read through the argument and then we can kind of talk about what it means. So you'll see that this will be a problem for Mormons that we'll have to deal with and most religions that believe in some type of deity. But it's especially a problem for those who believe in what's known as the omni-god. And that's the classical theism god. And this argument will demonstrate that. And we'll go into that very specifically. But I just want to point that out to begin with as I state these. So, one, necessarily, any being that is god is a perfect being. Two, necessarily, a perfect being is omnipotent. 
necessarily, an omnipotent being could unilaterally prevent any instance of evil of which it is aware. And necessarily, a perfect being is omniscient. So necessarily, an omniscient being is aware of all events that have, are now, or will occur. Necessarily, a perfect being is morally perfect. So necessarily, a morally perfect being would prevent all evils that it could, of which it is aware. Therefore, if there is any evil in the world, then there is no perfect being. There is evil in the world. Therefore, there is no perfect being. Therefore, there is no God. And so, this argument, and I guess there's various forms, but this is the form we're going to discuss, and it's the easiest way to understand it, is a lot of people use this as some sort of proof that God does not exist. Saying, like, well, clearly, if, you know, God is all-loving and all-powerful, then he would have the power to prevent this evil, and yet he doesn't. And we have to understand he's either not all-loving or not all-powerful, but if you want to affirm all of those, then, you know, that's not consistent with evil in the world. So, you start off first, and like, you know, a lot of Christians that hear this are like, well, pff, duh, that's easy. You know, there's two main things that people usually use to justify this, and it's either and we'll go into each in detail, but just right off the bat, it's like, oh, well, either God has some higher purpose and we just don't know about it, or free will. God didn't do it. Humans did it. And we'll get into those later. But first, you go back to premise nine, which is there is evil in the world. And you say, well, this at best is a value judgment that can only be assessed based on the evidence available to us coupled with sound moral judgment. For all we know, like I said, all evils could be justified by some greater good. For example, you give a shot or an immunization. Though it hurts and it is painful and it causes temporary suffering, overall, the benefit outweighs any suffering that there could be. So even though a child may not understand why they're, for example, getting a, the smallpox shot that they used to give to everybody, we, we can see, obviously, there's a greater good in store there, even though they may not be aware of it. I'll read this to you and then we can talk about that more. So, you suggest that there's at least three conditions that have to be met for the greater goods to count as a justifying good in response to the argument from the problem of evil. So saying like, well, God could have his reasons for allowing evil, so if he does, then it has to at least meet these conditions. In order to constitute a justifying good, the benefit derived from allowing an evil must be such that it a. outweighs the magnitude of the evil, b. is necessary to achieve the benefit in question, or c. Its occurrence cannot result in some benefit to the victim of the evil sufficient to justify its dehumanizing effects. And if you would unpack each of those and kind of what you mean by that. Sure. So what we're looking at, the good has to be of sufficient value that, that we're willing to do it. So, for instance, if you've got to cut off a person's arm in order to save their life, but you could also get the same benefit from merely a Band-Aid. You're not going to cut off the arm (laughs) because what's at issue isn't worth cutting off an arm, frankly. It's just a scratch. But it has to be something that is sufficiently good to merit allowing the evil to have the possibility of obtaining that good. It also has to be necessary to the benefit in question. When we say necessary here, we're not just saying, well, it, it, it would be a good means. We're saying it has to be logically necessary to achieve the benefit. And this is a very stringent requirement. If I can, I just gave you an example. If I can achieve the benefit in some better way that's less painful, then it's not a justifying good. So, for instance, if I can solve the problem with a Band-Aid rather than cutting off an arm, I'm going to do that. 
And it also furthers the interests of, of the victim and not merely gives others who are bystanders and spectators the opportunity to benefit from what occurs. So we would have to say that Rachel Runyon was a person, and as a person was due respect and dignity, and she has to be an end in and of herself. That is, she is so valuable that we can't treat her as a mere object to benefit others. She can't just be a means for others to benefit. There has to be some way that Rachel Runyon herself would possibly benefit from undergoing a mortal experience. We don't have to say that she benefits in particular from the bludgeoning and death that that occurred, but that overall the experience that was offered to her is such that she was living in a world that would benefit her even with the possibility of these dehumanizing effects. And so, remember, we've talked at great length about the I-Thou relationship. What I'm saying is we can't treat people as objects. They have to be treated as a thou, and this is an obligation that even God has. That makes sense there. You can't just say, oh, it's okay, because I learned something from it. Anyway, we'll get into that more later, too. All right, so next you go over, not only for this to make sense does it have to have a, a justifying good, but also it cannot be an unjustified evil, which you define as such. A, its magnitude of disvalue outweighs the value of any possible good to which the evil is necessary to achieve, or B, it is not necessary to realizing the value of any outweighing good, or C, its occurrence cannot result in some benefit to the victim of the evil sufficient to justify its dehumanizing effects. So, What I want to point out is that you don't have to have all three of these conditions in order to say that it's an unjustified evil. If any of these conditions, if the magnitude of the disvalue outweighs the value of the good to be achieved, then we've shown it's not a justified evil. If we show that it's not necessary to realize the good, but we can have it in another way that is less evil, then it's not a justifying good. And if its occurrence couldn't possibly benefit the victim, then it's not a justifying good. So any one of those would disqualify the good that we have in mind from being a justifying good for the evils that occur. What we're saying is there's a greater good. We're saying God could justifiably allow evils because of a greater good that would be achieved, like the benefits of a shot that we've talked about, But it has to meet these conditions to be that greater good. Good clarification. And then you hearken back to Rachel Runyon here, and I want to kind of tell this in two ways just to drive this point home. So when she got murdered, let's imagine that you were a bystander, and you happened to be walking, and you heard some rustling in the bushes, and you come up and you see this little girl in imminent danger from this perpetrator. If you, let's say, were a concealed carry person and you happen to have a gun right there or something, so you have the means to rescue this little girl without causing uh, you know, harm to yourself, as far as you can tell, and you have the opportunity. So if you have the power to stop this, we would feel you would be morally obligated to do so. But for some reason, you did just stand by and be like, you know what, I think the free will of this man is more important than me trying to interfere with what he's trying to do, so I'm not going to stop it. Obviously, that would not hold up in a court of law. Or if you said, you know what, her family might learn something from this if he gets his way and kills her. You know, they could really grow from this, so I'm just going to let this happen. Hmm, obviously not going to fly. But for some reason, both of those answers are what we say that God would have done, because God had power to stop this murder. I'll just read what you said here. You said, you said, no one would fault any person who interfered with the freedom of Rachel's murder 
to prevent him from carrying it out, because while freedom is valuable, her murderer's freedom to carry out his reprehensible acts just doesn't count in the moral considerations we take into account to determine whether to allow such events to occur. That's free will attempted to justify this. Another is soul building. You know, someone might learn from it. You say no one would not stop the murder just so that somebody else might learn something from it. So you write, it seems to me that unless we make God the exception to all moral rules that apply to us, such that everything we know about good and evil and moral obligations does not apply to God, then we must admit that there is nothing we know of that is both necessary and sufficiently good that would justify God in not intervening in the ways I have suggested, among many others, to stop those events from occurring. So, I mean, I don't think we need to say anything about that, but now we're going to move into this next section with Jacob, and he's going to talk about, I'll just get kind of, kind of an intro of, you know, we say a lot that, well, you know what? God's ways are not our ways. And so it's a mystery. We'll never be able to grapple why bad things happen, but we can just trust that God is good and whatever happens must be for the best. There must be some reason why he allowed it. And we're limited humans and there's no way we can ever comprehend that. All right. And you more or less suggest that we can't use these human cognitive limitations or the limit on our capacity to understand these things as a cop-out to not even deal with the problem of evil. So you say, it seems to me that at least three observations must be admitted with respect to the challenge to God's existence from evil. A, we cannot be expected to know what God's actual purposes in allowing these particular evils, in fact, are, absent particular revelation. B, we are often not in a very good cognitive position to make decisions about, all things considered, judgments, and see God's glory and vast knowledge are such that his possible reasons for allowing particular events may very well be beyond our ability to grasp. With that in mind, though, you add, I suggest that the problem of evil arises not from what is beyond our cognitive grasp, though, but is what from was within our grasp to assess. We can see that we ourselves have acted to prevent specific instances of evil and what the consequences of doing so have been. So let's give a couple of examples here. I take my dog to the vet, and I have him undergo a series of painful shots. Now, my dog doesn't have the cognitive capacity to understand germ theory or why the vaccinations would possibly work, and my dog can't begin to fathom why I, his owner, would be turning him over to someone else to be subjected to pain consistent with my love. So the dog can't even begin to form because the dog lacks the cognitive capacity altogether to even begin to assess these types of matters. And the question is, is are we in the same, um, in relationship with God, essentially the same? We're just not even in a position to begin to assess the kinds of considerations that would be necessary to understand these kinds of all things considered judgments. So if God, for instance, cured cancer immediately, what other changes would occur in the natural world that would have to compensate for it? Or if God had, had truncated, for instance, the free will of Rachel Runyon's murderer, would that somehow up in the natural order make it so God's plans can't be realized? The problem is, when we put it that way, I think it's obvious to us, it's not what we don't know, it's what we do know. We can see with pellucid clarity that the natural order is not going to be upended. The moral order is not going to be truncated or, or made meaningless if God stops Rachel Runyon's murder. We know that. And we know that because we run out and grab our kids all the time to keep them from running out in the middle of the street to get hit by a car. And we understand quite well what the consequences of not doing so are. And we can understand that the death of a little child is a bad thing. 
And anybody who would argue otherwise just doesn't have the ability to even engage in a moral discussion because they're so bereft of the cognitive capacity to understand what a moral good is. But human beings understand what moral goods are. But still, I mean, this is a very popular argument, and that is, you know, our cognitive capacities are just so limited. How could we possibly even begin to assess everything in the world that would have to be assessed in order to assess whether or not God could, in fact, stop these evils? And I think we have to acknowledge that, you know, on some level, obviously, this is true. No one can ever actually know what God has in mind or in store or something. But you're, like you said, it can't just stop there. Yeah, this doesn't give us a reason to say, oh, you know, there's evil and, you know, that's God's way and just never even tackle the problem. And for the reasons that, as you described, you suggest this principle, the principle relevant similarity in that, you know, we can see things that have been in existence, but then we as humans have put a stop to, and that hasn't caused the grand order of the cosmos and and God's plan to be frustrated. And let me go ahead and read it. So the way that you word it is, if humans have successfully prevented events from occurring that are relatively similar to other events that have occurred that could have been prevented by an omnigod, if it exists, then one rationally believes that preventing those events did not deprive the world of some greater good, because the omnigod, if it exists, allowed us to prevent them from occurring. Then we also have strong reason to believe that preventing the events that actually occur would not deprive the world of some greater good. One of the, the examples you gave already is smallpox, uh, and another being AIDS. Yeah, so I call these intransigent evils. An intransigent evil is an evil that is not easily explicable or explained in terms of some greater good that would need to be achieved. And the reason for that is that is from this principle of relevant similarity that I have suggested. So let's take smallpox. We know that smallpox is not necessary to either the moral fabric of the universe or the natural order of the world, because it doesn't exist anymore. And we've done just fine without smallpox. And so we know that stopping smallpox is something that the world can do without just fine. So the question is, why didn't God stop it sooner? Moreover, the very first case of AIDS wasn't reported until about 1982. It's possible it existed as early as 1959, but the first real documented case is 1982. The world was fine without AIDS up until 1982. It boggles the mind to think that the world was not functioning normally up until 1982. So I call these intransigent evils. They seem to be the kinds of natural evils that we just can't explain in terms of our limited cognitive capacities because we're in a cognitive position to assess the fact that these evils are not necessary to any greater good, given the fact that they, in fact, didn't exist for a very long time or no longer exist. And then you bring up, because you know these intransigent evils are not necessary to the realization of a greater good, we have to have some sort of theodicy or a reasonable explanation of how God possibly could be justified in allowing the radical evils and intransigent evils that occur to maintain rationality of belief in God. So theodicy comes from the words theos and dike. Dike is justification or righteousness, and theos, of course, is God. And so what a theodicy is, is a justification of God's righteousness in the face of evil in the world. And we'll get to that. I, I mean, it's a much a discussion that will take place after we've already plumbed the problem of evil at greater depth. But I present three different theodicies that are live options in Mormon thought. Um, but it's going to take us several weeks to get to those, so kind of stay tuned, I guess. Yeah, uh, so we know 
that's coming. Let, let's dig more into the problem of evil and what we learn from it. The next section. So, so diving a little bit deeper into the problem of evil itself, we have what's called the problem of moral quietude for skeptical theism. And you say, it seems to me that if we really believe that the omni-god exists so that there are no unjustified evils, then we are justified in moral quietude, in believing that no matter what we do, the particular events of so-called evils that we confront are in reality justified because they are necessary to the realization of some greater good that may well be beyond our cognitive capacity to grasp. Boy, would that be a horrible world to live in. Yeah, so, <laughs> that wasn't part of your quote, but uh, just picturing that is, oh my goodness. <laughs> well, what, what, it, what it suggests is that for a person who believes that everything is for the best, that God has a justifying reason for every, virtually every evil that occurs, is that there's never any reason to act or even assess matters morally. Let me give an example. So you have a young doctor who is working in the hospital, and an emergency arises. There's a certain medicine that is usually used by doctors to stop tremors and, and convulsions when a patient goes into a convulsive fit. And normally she would administer this, but she knows that when she's been there at least four or five times before, the doctors who have been treating this patient haven't delivered that particular drug to this patient. Now, normally, she would have a moral obligation to take care of the patient by delivering this drug, but she reasons to herself, these doctors know much more than I do about this patient. They've been practicing a lot longer than I have. There must be some darn good reason why they don't administer the cure for the convulsions, and so I better not administer it. Now, as a matter of fact, for you know, I've done medical malpractice cases for some time. She would be medically justified in either administering it, because that's the usual protocol, or in not administering it, if she could justify and show from the charts that it wasn't administered previously. She has no reason to believe that she should act one way or the other because she just doesn't have enough information to know whether it's good or bad for this patient. Compare that to the position of a, of a Christian who believes that everything that occurs occurs because God must have some darn good reason for it. It doesn't matter what occurs, whatever occurs is for the best. We know that we don't know as much as God does. So I'm brought to a situation where I see a woman being attacked on the street. And I think to myself, you know, this has happened lots of times in the history of the world where people have been attacked, and God must have had a justifying reason for it. And so if I don't act, this was what will in fact be for the best, and so I better not act because I just don't know enough to really assess this. And so the person is justified morally in either acting or not acting. If the person acts, so I just can't stand it, I'm going to stop it. But they interfere with God's plan. But it doesn't matter because they can reason. If I interfere, that's what God intended. If I don't interfere, that's what God intended. Either way, I don't have a moral obligation to do one or the other because it's all for the best ultimately. So this is the problem of moral quietude. And that is that a person that has no moral obligation to act ever, given the assessment that whatever occurs is all for the best. And this is this is the problem with the kind of explanation that we've been discussing, what I call the greater good defense. All right, and, and what part of this, because what also came to my mind is, not only does the person not seem to have an obligation of stopping someone else, it doesn't seem to have an obligation to stop themselves. Like, exactly. I'm hungry, well, I want that candy bar, but if I steal it, you know, that's all part of the greater good anyway. It's part of God's plan, so. Classic Simpsons. <laughs> That Homer's life is just as it should be now. And so he, he kneels down to say prayer and says, God, 
my life is just as it is, lads, just as I want it to be, and I don't want it to change. And I brought you a sacrificial offering in the form of this donut. If you'd like me to eat this donut for you, please send me no sign. <laughs> and then he, of course, receives no sign and proceeds to eat the donut. Yeah, or compare that with Bard's prayer when he says, if you don't want me to do this, strike me dead now. Oh, you didn't do it, so I'll go ahead. <laughs> so. Well, no, I, and I've had the same... I don't know, this kind of plays into, like, the problem, I mean, we're not going to talk about this here, but, like, the problem of prayer, too, just this idea of, you know, like, when I pray, I'm like, well, if you believe in this omni-god, then you have to basically pray, like, you know what, God, why don't you just do whatever you want, because whatever it is is for the best, so if I don't, for example, get a job, then I, that must be for the best, if I do, that must be for the best, so it doesn't really matter what I want, it only matters what you're going to do, so go ahead and do it. Yeah, at the end of my prayer, I'm going to say, thy will be done, which is, is the same as saying, go ahead and do disregard my prayer and do what you were going to do, even if I didn't say the prayer. At least. <laughs> so, And here's the problem. It's not merely a problem of moral quietude, which means that, that you don't have any sufficient motivation to ever do a moral act. There are no moral facts that we can actually assess. It renders us so morally incapacitated that we aren't in a position to assess right or wrong. It's like a, a little girl who can't assess whether or not what her parents are doing to her is good or evil because she can't begin to understand what they're doing. So she has no reason whatsoever to praise them for doing good, no reason to complain that they're doing evil. And so she has no reason to engage in the kinds of worshipful activities that we would with respect to God because we can't assess whether he's good or not. The entire notion of good and evil lose all meaning, it seems to me. And this is a big problem with this kind of a solution to the problem of evil and probably more than sufficient to reject it. So that problem had to do specifically with skeptical theism, which was just what we were talking about before, about how God's ways are not our ways, so let's just trust God and whatever the reason, he must have a reason. So next we get into the same problem of moral quietude, but for what's called meticulous providence. So providence is how God unilaterally acts in the world. Again, and so in the tradition, and especially in traditions such as like Calvinism, God literally has a hand in every last little thing, and the world is going exactly how God planned it, and because he's making it happen, basically. So I'll read this quote here. You say, We may call the view that every event is the direct result of the omni-god's choices, meticulous providence. However, there's another school of thought called open theists and panentheists, which I think we've talked about before, but open theism just means the future is open. Panentheist means God is included in the universe and not separate from the universe, like in traditional Christian thought. And God does not know what will result from any given circumstance and must wait on the free acts of agents to know what will be chosen and how others will freely choose to respond to those free choices. So I guess that's just to juxtapose what we're talking about here. We're not talking about those. We're talking about meticulous providence here. Yeah, so w what we need to say is that the Omni-God has not merely all power, but also all knowledge. So not only is he able to rid the world of evil, he knows how to do it. And because he's good, he has the motivation to do it every single time he can, and he always can, so there's no evil. But with open theists and panentheists, it's a bit different, and that is because there can be a world type such that is, is necessary to realize greater goods, because God can have purposes, for instance, of soul building. He can have a purpose of allowing people free will to grow and become something more than they are. And because of the limitations on his knowledge, he can't completely guarantee that everything that occurs is good. He can't guarantee that it's for the best. 
It may be that genuinely evil things occur, and that brings us to a definition of what a genuine evil would be. All right, and I'll read that. So, a genuine evil is any event or choice that God must allow in order to have the possibility of realizing the purposes for the world type he created, but in which the actual world is not better, all things considered, that such particular choice or event occurs. So let me give an example. It would be best if everybody chose to be saved and accept God's grace when it's offered. But if God leaves us genuinely free, then it's up to us, and God couldn't unilaterally guarantee that that occurs. And so it may be that he would not act to save us all precisely because it's a better type of salvation if we freely choose it. And let me give a reason why. A love that is freely chosen is far more valuable than any love that would be coerced or that couldn't be freely chosen. And God may value this kind of love so much that can't exist in the absence of free will, that what he would do is create a world type where free will exists and leaves it up to us whether to choose to be saved or not. And overall, this world is better than any world where there's not this kind of freedom in relationship with God. And so the world type requires that some people are allowed to choose to go to hell. Now, it's not a good thing that they choose it. It's a genuine evil that they choose to go to hell, but it has to be their choice by its very nature. So the world type would include free will, and there may be things that occur that aren't all for the best, all things considered. In other words, we're denying that God would need to have a justifying reason for virtually every event that occurs because the world type is the justifying reason. There's that idea, but then... It's a little bit different for the Calvinist, Thomist, and Molinist views because the distinction between a world type and the actual world collapses on these views because there are no actual genuine evils because everything that happens is consistent with the Omnigod's will and ability to bring it about. I can't remember how we get here and you can fill us in, but who is it that basically recreates Molinism? You say here and then I'm going to read about it. Alvin Plantica probably the preeminent philosopher of religion in the 20th century. Okay, so Alvin Plantinga, in his take on a theodicy, he kind of recreates Molinism, which we talked about before in the first book, but I wanted to read what you have here because I think it really succinctly puts the idea of Molinism. So, And to zoom out before I read this, just Molinism again is the idea that before creation happened, God could see, he, he would preserve freedom because he would see what people would freely do in all these possible worlds, meaning if I did, you know, if A led to B and B led to C, then I could see it would get results Z, therefore I'd have to change it for this to happen to this to happen. But everything that's resulting is apparently from the free will of this foresight that he's having in these worlds that don't actually exist yet, but just so what could happen. What so remember what God has is middle knowledge, and he sees not merely what will in fact happen, but what could happen before people even exist. He looks at all the people who are logically possible to exist. He looks at what is their individual essence. You know, whatever is essential to, for you to be you, that's what he sees. And he sees all of the possible worlds that you can exist in, and he sees all of the possible worlds that there are. And what he does is he creates a combination of possible worlds that are overall good. So what God is doing is assessing what will be good based upon logical possibilities given his middle knowledge of what would occur in any given circumstance. It's like the George Bailey saga where God shows George Bailey what the world would have been like if he had never been born. 
And God doesn't know that because he actually saw it, because that's not what actually occurred. God would have to have middle knowledge to show George Bailey what the world would be like if he were never born. So just to give you an example of that. Okay, and then you say the believer in meticulous providence, especially the strain where they go basically into Molinism, is constrained to the following. One, every event that occurs is necessary to the realization of a greater good, even if what the good is or how it is necessary is beyond our cognitive grasp. The assumption there is that skeptical theism we talked about. Two, it is always morally permissible for us, or human beings, to bring about the greater good whenever it is in our power to do so, even if we don't know what the greater good is. And three, any act that we actually do is necessary to the realization of the greater good. And you get those from premises one and two. And so the conclusion is, therefore, any act that we actually do is morally permissible. So obviously no one would want to take that view, but you're saying on, on this view of meticulous providence, you basically have to go that direction, especially if you're going into this middle knowledge Molinist view, because God has already foreseen that the world that is occurring is the best possible world, and that's why he's creating it this way, or that's why he chose this one. So while he's not making it happen like in Calvinist, where you're like, you know, you're basically controlled by God, it's a hand-picked set of free acts that he has foreseen you do, and so if you're doing them, you know that that's the best thing that possibly could have ever happened. Or that's, you know, the, of all the of all of God's options, the things that's happening was the very best option. So anything that you do is justified. Yeah, and let me make this even stranger. I mean, it's not based upon what he sees you will, in fact, do. It's based upon middle knowledge. It's what you would do if he created this particular set of circumstances or this particular possible world. And he sees that and what you would do even if you're never created and never exist. So it's, it's really clear that what you would do isn't based upon you because you don't exist. And I submit that what doesn't exist doesn't have causal power to bring about anything. So, you know, as we discussed, Molinism is a, is a lot to swallow because it appears in Molinism that there's no ground for what we call the counterfactuals of freedom or these would statements, what a person would do if they were created in this particular possible world. It seems that God is making decisions not based upon the value of persons, but based upon mere logical indexical possibilities, which is to say that when we get right down to it, what happens isn't up to God, what happens isn't up to the person who supposedly, whose supposed acts they are. It's just a given about the world. What's true about what you would do is just a third fact about this particular possible world, and God chooses from among those possible worlds which one to create. I, you know, roundly criticize Molinism, and I don't believe that Molinism is logically consistent either with free will, but I don't think it's even logically consistent within itself. But this is what, I, I think it's the best that can be done with the meticulous providence view. So I, I provide it and, and then critique it. Okay, and we'll get into that more when we go over the free will defense. But next we're going to go into talking about the no minimum evil defense and the no, it, no minimum evil defense is a defense that was put up by uh, Peter Van Inwagen, who is, is one of Peter the, Van Inwagen. He's an American philosopher, taught at Notre oh. Dame, and is one of the preeminent philosophers of religion as well. He's a really clear head. I really like reading him. He goes on about this no minimum evil defense. He says, But what of all the hundreds of millions, at least, of instances of horrendous suffering that have occurred during the long history of life. Well, I concede God could have prevented any one of them, 
or any two of them, or any three of them, without thwarting any significant good or permitting any significant evil. But could he have prevented all of them? No, not without causing the world to be massively irregular. And of course, there is no sharp cutoff point between a world that is massively irregular and a world that is not. There is, therefore, no minimum number of cases of intense suffering that God could allow without forfeiting the good of a world that is not massively irregular. So obviously we need to talk about a massively irregular world. That means one where God is constantly intervening and or the laws of nature have to be constantly truncated so that they don't really function as intended. That's what a massively irregular world is. Okay. So he continues, He, God, cannot remove all the horrors from the world, for that would frustrate his plan for reunited human beings with himself. And if he prevents only some horrors, how shall then he decide which ones to prevent? Where shall he draw the line? The line between the threatened horrors that are prevented and threatened horrors that are allowed actually to occur. I suggest that wherever he draws that line, it will be an arbitrary line. So let's give him just kind of an example here. You've got a prisoner, and the warden is looking. He's been sentenced to 600 days. The warden is looking at, can I let this guy out early? And in fact, wardens have authority to let him out early. And he's thinking to himself, would 599 days have any less deterrent um, than 600 days? And he thinks to himself, no, I'm sure it wouldn't. Well, how about 598? No, if I let him out 598 days, that would have the same deterrent value. Well, how about 597? Yeah, that would have the same deterrent value. It appears that the you know the warden is going to continue, but where he draws the line saying that it's sufficient is going to be a fairly arbitrary line. And, and he thinks to himself, well, we have to allow some days for there to be deterrent value, but exactly where the best deterrent value is, I don't really know. But would there be more deterrent value from zero days than one day? And the warrant says, you know, I really don't think that one day has much more deterrent value than no prison at all. So maybe we shouldn't send me to prison at all. It's an interesting thought experiment that is that was actually proposed by Van Inwagen. And, and it, it shows the kind of argument that he's making. And that is, okay, everyone will concede, I believe, that in order for people to express courage in their lives, for them to learn from confronting real challenges for people to be able to learn compassion and love and, and to be able to grow in a world of challenges, there have to be real challenges. There have to be people who are difficult to love, maybe even impossible to love. And there have to be instances that occur that are true challenges. If a knife turned to butter every time we went to stab a person, but it remained still when we were slicing butter, then we would begin to figure out real quickly that you know, it doesn't matter what I do because I can get away with it because the natural world will conspire against allowing me to do any evil. So God has to allow some kinds of evils, it seems. And what Van Inwagen is arguing is there is no minimum amount of evil that, that God could identify or that we could identify and say, that's too much. And so what Van Inwagen is saying, in essence, is that it really doesn't matter. This well, while you're bringing that up, I mean, what it seems, what he's saying is, I mean, it wouldn't, be very fair for him to be involved in preventing a whole bunch of evils. He can't be like, well, you know, I can prevent so many evils because I need this much evil for this to still be a regular world. But like, how could he draw that line? It, there obviously has to be some evil, uh, like you're saying, for, for us to confront challenges and grow. So if he allows evil, he has to allow, you know, at least a certain amount. But how can he actually draw a line at a minimum requirement? 
No, that's that's exactly right, and it's a very good argument. Now, I want to point out one thing, and that, that is Van Inwagen is coming at the problem from the perspective of an open theist. Van Inwagen doesn't believe that human free will and God's foreknowledge are compatible, and he believes in human free will. So he's assessing the world from the perspective that a, an open theist would assess it, and he's saying in this world it just may be that God is allowed to allow a world type because not everything is happening for the greater good. There can be genuine evils. But if there are going to be genuine evils, there's no minimum number of genuine evils that, that God could be culpable um, for allowing, or no maximum number that we could identify that after which he's no longer good, at which point he would become an unjustified God or something like that. So Ben and Wagen is giving us a thought experiment that is well worth thinking about. Kind of adding in on it, you show that uh, John Hick points out that a world without any evil at all cannot function as a world where soul building is possible. A world where soul building is possible cannot be a hedonic paradise with no real challenges. For the world to function as an arena for personal growth into mature personhood, it must appear that, for all we can see, there are evils that should be eliminated. It must appear that there are unjustified evils that can function to motivate us to prevent evils, confront them head-on as a means of developing character traits such as courage, compassion, virtue, and so forth. In this sense, the no-minimum-evil thesis works. Yeah, so I think what what we want to acknowledge here is that there seems, seems to be something right about what Vin and Wagen is saying here. It seems to be the case that it really is kind of arbitrary where we say there's too much evil. Now, let me point out something. Imagine a world where there's exactly half amount of the evil events that occur, natural evil and moral evil events that occur. What we would realize very quickly is that a world with half the events still has too much evil in it for us. Then that no matter what amount of evil, it will still be intolerable for us. And so in this sense, any evil is intolerable for us and gives rise to a problem of evil. But we've just acknowledged that a world where some genuine evils occur has to be a real possibility for the world. And so Vanian Wagen thinks that he's got a complete theodicy or defense. That this is a type of a defense recognition that logically there's no minimum amount of evil. You poke some holes in this, though, because obviously if we're believing in the omni-god or the, the god of classical theism, he's created everything out of nothing. So you say, that said... I don't see any reason why the Omni-God must create immature creatures who require such challenges to grow to become more responsible agents when it has the choice of creating virtually omniscient agents who would go wrong much less than we do. It is necessary to allow my children to confront these challenges because their nature as immature humans who are unformed and not yet capable of fully responsible decisions their brains must undergo a process of development before they can engage in critical reasoning and sound judgment. However, the same limitations don't confront the Omnigod. There's no reason why such an Omnigod couldn't have created only persons with capacity for adept moral reasoning and virtual omniscience to assess the best interests. So essentially, my criticisms, uh, and I have a number of criticisms of Van Wagen's proposal in my book. I'm just going to mention two of them. The first is, go back to the warden analogy. It's just false that one year in prison doesn't have any more deterrent effect than zero time in prison. It's false that five years in prison doesn't have any more deterrent effect than one year in prison. So the minimum evil defense just seems to be wrong in, in some way. 
I think that we're in a position to see that the types of evils that occur and the amount of evil that occurs is way beyond what's necessary for soul building. And it's a particular challenge when we add the requirement that the, the evils, to be justifying evils, have to be able to benefit the person who experiences the evil itself. So just for an example, and, and I hate to do this because I don't want to make an object of Rachel Runyon, but I, I want to talk about this instance to learn from it, and that is, how on earth could Rachel Runyon's death have benefited Rachel Runyon? That's the critical question. There's so many kids who die when they're young. Can't, they don't even get a start on soul building. So the goal of soul building is not going to be a justification for the fact that a young child is, is murdered or, or tortured to death or, or dies of cancer young. We're going to have to look for some other potential reason if we're going to even have a, you know, if we can even say it with a straight face and not be overrun by, you know, overwhelmed by these kinds of evils. Because we can see that the kinds of evils don't really lead to soul building. And we can't see even any justification for them. So when we say God has to allow some evil, we're saying, but when we look at the particular kinds of evil we're dealing with, we have to admit to ourselves, I don't see how these are justifying evils in any way. They're not justifying evils. So they're not included in the no minimum evil defense. Equally importantly, God had another option. God could have created creatures very different from us who are virtually omniscient and more morally sensitive than we are. So that, for instance, and we'll get into this later in a different way, God, if he had made us omniscient in this way, we could have cured cancer and we could have cured smallpox and we could have rid the world of all kinds of virulent diseases and the causes of death that cause children to die young. And we could have done it with... with you know, hardly, you know, breaking a sweat because if, if we've already solved the problem of smallpox, if we were just a little smarter, we could have done it a lot earlier, and let alone nearly omniscient. And I can't see any reason why God couldn't have made us either totally omniscient or near omniscient sufficient to, that we wouldn't have to undergo these kinds of evils. So I don't think, I, I developed this, and it's a unique argument that we'll get into later, but I call it the, the um, better alternative option. Um, problem of evil because God clearly had better options open to him than he actually took if that's if if he's creating the world out of absolutely nothing and isn't limited in the way he creates so in my view the the no e minimum evil defense is overlooking the types and amounts of evil that occur and is overlooking the options that God had open to him in a in a scenario where he's creating virtually out of nothing and gets anything he wants right and with that let's move on to uh, talking about God's options and the free will defense. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.com.